Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Nakubo in Brief. This is Liz Clark, I'm Vice President for Policy and Research at Nakubo, and I'm delighted today to bring you a slightly different version of Nakubo in Brief. I will be joined by the other regular hosts of Nakubo in Brief, Megan Schneider and Brian Dixon. Megan and Brian, introduce yourselves. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Megan Schneider, Senior Director of Government Affairs at Nakubo. Hello, this is Brian Dixon, Director of Student Financial Services and Educational Programs at Nakubo. So typically, Megan, Brian, or I have a guest on the program and take a somewhat deep dive into a project, an issue, a different topic. But there's so much going on in Washington these days that we wanted to share with our listeners some updates on what we're following at Nakubo and what we're thinking about and trying to solve these days when it comes to higher education and the intersection with the federal government, whether it's action on Capitol Hill or action in the federal agencies. But before we do that, I thought we'd spend a couple of minutes getting to know one another a little bit better here. And let's just talk about where folks are working from these days. We at Nakubo gave staff the option to work from home full-time or to work from the office or to create some kind of hybrid opportunity. So, Megan, how have you chosen to uh, continue doing your work these days? I work primarily from home. Um, I'm very lucky in that I live very close to the Nakubo offices, so it's it's relatively easy for me to pop in uh, when needed. Being in the middle of downtown DC, it means that space is a bit of at a bit of a premium. So I don't have a ton of space for my a full home office setup at home. So it's always nice to be able to pop into the office when I need to. But um, as we speak right now, I am recording this podcast in my bedroom closet. So I'm, I'm primarily still working from home. We've all had experiences looking for soundproof locations that aren't disturbed by doorbells or dogs and cats or constructions out on the street. So a very clever solution for a podcast recording there, Megan. Brian, how about you? What does uh, your work life look like these days? Hi, um, I've been uh, itching for the day to come back to the office. Um, I thought I was an introvert and I learned very quickly that might not be the case, but um, I'm doing the hybrid model. So I'm coming in about two to three days uh, a week and uh, then working from from home the majority uh, the the rest of that rather uh, my workspace at home is about a twenty four inch wide uh, secretary 
that barely has enough space to hold my laptop. Um, uh, so uh, coming in here in the office with you know a desk and dual monitors and space, it's it's like flying first class. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> I like that. I like thinking that the Nakubo office is like flying first class. I'll take it. What has your commute been looking like, Brian? Uh, you know, so I used to take Metro uh, in. Um, actually, I had moved to a new apartment about uh, a month before the pandemic really kicked into high gear. So I only really knew that commute, for, that new commute for about a month. But uh, I've been driving in now. I'm in Tacoma, um, so right in the northern tip of, of D.C. And uh, driving in, it's been about 25 minutes. Um, and I don't know if that's – I think that's really good. I never used to drive that in. So uh, for the time being, it's not, it's not too bad. I'm sure there will reach a tipping point where I say enough uh, with the driving. I'll go back to Metro. But mentally, my um, – my uh, my mental gears aren't quite ready to think about getting on a train with a, a ton of people at this point. I'm sure I'll get there, but right now, driving's kind of the way to go for me, at least. I have to admit, it's been a long time since I've taken Metro, uh, either for work or or uh, other purposes. So I think I need to brace myself as well before the day I, I get on Metro again. I have been driving into the office three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and working from home on Monday and Fridays. And I have to admit the jury's out on whether I prefer working in the office or working at home. There's something to be said for being in the office with uh, no husband, no dog, no child. Uh, On the other hand, being in the office is a lot different these days. We are not a full house. Not everyone is here, and it's very quiet. So, the benefits of running into your colleagues in the hallway or being able to pop in and see Megan or Brian and just chat for something here or there, it's not quite there yet as we go back into the office. But we're figuring it out, and we are navigating this hybrid work world, and uh, we'll keep checking in on this. We'll see if this is the way of uh, years to come or if there are going to be other different ways that we work. But uh, so far... So good, but a lot of questions. Speaking of questions, there's a lot of activity going on on Capitol Hill and in federal agencies these days. And I've asked Megan and Brian both to share updates on some of the major issues or events that they're following and to explain why they're following them on behalf of Nakubo, but also as to why these questions or concerns are important to higher education. So, Megan, we're going to start with you. What is keeping you busy these days? Well, I'll give my uh, honorable mention shout out uh, to the HERF annual reporting form that I know our members are really eagerly waiting for. Um, That's your higher education emergency relief fund reporting form, Uh, not the quarterly one, the annual one. Um, The department had earlier proposed a draft that we uh, didn't think was great. And Nakubo submitted comments that hopefully the department will heed. Um, but we're expecting the release of that form any day now. So that's my honorable mention. Um, but of course, on Capitol Hill, pretty much all the dis- discussion right now is about uh, infrastructure. And for higher education in particular, there are quite a few provisions of interest in um, one of the two infrastructure packages. Of course, there's the bipartisan infrastructure package, which is more traditional uh, and won't impact higher ed too much. 
But of course, over on the reconciliation infrastructure package side, um, there are quite a few provisions of note. Uh, of course, there are sort of the high profile ones like free community college, um, additional support for uh, minority serving institutions and research activities, all of which is great. Um, but we at Nakubo are particularly concerned with um, several tax provisions in that bill. I won't go into all of them because uh, we, this would be a very long podcast, uh, but suffice to say there is accurate coverage on our website. And also if you subscribe to our accounting and tax quarterly, there's a great deep dive of all the tax provisions. Um, just as an example, some of those items are the return of advanced refunding for tax exempt bonds, um, addressing the taxability of uh, Pell Grants, uh, making some changes to the American Opportunities Tax Credit to better serve students. So we are really hoping Hoping with all of the uh, debate that is going on on the infrastructure package that those tax items of interest stay in for us and for our students. Um, pivoting to the Department of Education, or really rather the Department of Homeland Security, keeping a close eye on recently proposed DACA regulations. Our listeners will probably remember that uh, it was earlier this year that a federal judge in Texas ruled the DACA program to be unconstitutional. And one of the reasons why was because he said it had been created by executive order and never went through the traditional notice and comment rulemaking process that is traditional of uh, large regulations. Obviously, we have been huge supporters of the DACA program. We have called on Congress for years to strengthen the program, as well as the Department of Homeland Security. But since DACA's creation back in 2012, there has been a lot of back and forth, a lot of uncertainty, um, efforts to strengthen the program by some administrations, uh, efforts to eliminate the program by other administrations. Um, I, I'm really happy to see the Biden administration propose these new regulations. They don't do much to change uh, DACA eligibility requirements, but they are hoping that subjecting the requirements to the notice and comment process will uh, strengthen the under pinnings of the program, but even they acknowledge that Congress does need to take action, um, particularly as we get further and further out from the creation of the DACA program, which, as I said, was in 2012. On our campuses, we're starting to see a lot more students that are falling into what we call the dreamers pool, which is individuals that... Um, you know, would otherwise meet all the requirements of the DACA program, but because of their age, don't really, right? So one of the main requirements of DACA was that you have had, you were brought to the U.S. There's a lot of different requirements, but primarily it's aimed at helping individuals that were brought to the U.S. as young child, as young children uh, that were not um, documented at the time. But because 2007 was so long ago now and effort, efforts to update the program haven't, you know, been hugely successful, it's entirely possible now to have an 18-year-old freshman that was brought to the U.S. as a young child and, you know, when they were five, six, seven, so they've lived here the majority of their life. All of their schooling has happened in the U.S. But for 18-year-olds now, you know, when you're five, six, seven, that's post-2007. That was 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, so really hoping that we see some of those updates made in future rulemaking so that uh, that population, which of course will only grow as the years go on, can can receive that uh, assurance so they can continue on with their higher ed uh, efforts and we can support them as best we can on our campuses. Uh, and then finally, my, my last sort of big item of the week is, of course, 
college athletics. Everyone's talking about it. Uh, the National Labor Relations Board recently released a memo uh, defining student athletes as uh, employees and, in fact, advising colleges and universities not to refer to them as student athletes, to refer to them very explicitly as employees, um, defining their scholarships as compensation, um, all sorts of things like that. This came just a day before a hearing on name, image, and likeness. It is the seventh such hearing, I believe, that Congress has undertaken. Um, and from our perspective, obviously, we're still digging into it, but the potential uh, tax filing ramifications, the potential, you know, W-2s, the potential sort of all of these other things that happen that are unrelated to college athletics when you classify someone as an employee versus as a student um, could have pretty big ramifications, both for student athletes and for the institutions that they are studying at. So keeping a pretty close eye on that as well uh, and look for more on that from us in the future. There is certainly a lot going on and a lot of really tricky issues to try to solve. And, and some of these, I'm not sure we're going to see resolution anytime soon. Uh, we are seeing progress for DACA students or not uh, in, in some in some ways. Given the makeup of this Congress, uh, is there any other path forward to deal with a path to citizenship or is this regulatory process our next best hope right here, right now? Today, yes, it is our, our next best hope. But even, <laughs> even in producing the proposed rule, the administration said Congress needs to take action. It's not enough that we can just go through this traditional rulemaking progress. There's too much uncertainty. Um, these regulations already need to be updated. Congress needs to come up with some form of legislation uh, that you know, sort of helps to codify the program to help our uh, students not be in this legal limbo that they've been in pretty much since the program was created, where one day they have DACA protection, one day they don't, one day the Department of Homeland Security can accept new DACA, DACA applications, one day they can't. Um, it's just, it's a lot of uncertainty um, to constantly be living your life with. So, um you know, we're we're thrilled that DHS is taking this action now, but it also really uh, needs to be paired with further legislative action from Congress. And hopefully we can see that soon. Obviously, it remains um, politically somewhat contentious. So stay tuned. We'll see. Let me ask one more question of you, Megan. You mentioned Pell taxability. What exactly does that mean? Why are we seeing good news in this infrastructure bill? What What is the benefit to students who are Pell eligible? So there's actually several items of uh, good tax news for Pell students in the reconciliation infrastructure package. So regarding Pell taxability, as of right now, uh, Pell students have certain portions of their Pell grants taxed if they are not used for what we call qualified tuition or related expenses. So there are certain things that you can spend your Pell grant on, like your tuition, um, and that portion of the money won't be taxed. But if you're spending it on other things like housing, for example, uh, that portion may be taxed. Um, and obviously, the Pell, purpose of the Pell Grant is to help the lowest income students. Uh, so having 
their uh, educational assistance taxed in any way really sort of defeats the purpose of what the grants are trying to do. Um, this is particularly difficult for community college students who have, uh, you know, they're starting from the gate with perhaps lower tuition costs. So there are other things to support their educational efforts, buying laptops, buying books, things like that, that would be hugely beneficial to be able to spend that money tax-free on. Um, so we are continue to push for that, that uh, the entirety of Pell Grants not be taxable. Um, there is also a American Opportunities Tax Credit Interaction issue uh, that is preventing uh, some Pell Grant students from being able to make use of the American Opportunities Tax Credit. It tends to be also students at community colleges. Um, and again, you know, these are the lowest income students that we're attempting to help. So uh, this legislation would solve that problem. Uh, and we're really hoping to see that. These are, you know, vulnerable student populations, particularly right now in light of the pandemic. These are uh, groups of individuals that we're seeing a larger uh, rates of um, a lack of retention. Uh, and so really, we want to do everything we can we can to help those students right now. And these measures would certainly help with that. This has all been very interesting from the legal limbo for undocumented or DACA students to questions about how we transition student athletes from scholarships to compensation and what that means in the tax regime and untangling uh, Pell Grants, the American Opportunity Tax Credit, and all of the other provisions in the reconciliation legislation that's moving forward on Capitol Hill are all important parts of what Nakubo is up to, trying to translate for lawmakers what their actions mean for students and institutions, and then translating what's going on in Washington to our Nakubo members. Brian, uh, what is up in your scope of work these days? Yeah, so not quite as shiny as as Megan's, but still important. Um, so I'm going to be a little uh, veterans-focused here. And really just some changes to uh, a law that went into place in the initial days of 2021, the Isaacson Rowe Act. Um, that bill did a lot of good for our student veterans, but there were places, like most legislation, where it can be improved, uh, so it's not quite as confusing to the students. So, for example, the... Um, the law requires a lot of consumer disclosures, and, and those are good, right? Informed decisions are good. But some of the things they're asking for could be confusing or misleading. And, and there are a lot of disclosures out there and required by a lot of agencies. And, and sometimes we feel like we're all drowning in disclosures. Uh, and the good news is that there's already a tool in place that, that schools are using with student veterans. Um, it's called the, the college financing plan. And it's it's been around for something like 10 years now. So we're just calling on a change to the law to, to utilize that tool rather than uh, the disclosures presented in the law. And another bit uh, is a ban on incentive compensation payments to staff at schools. So this gets at the recruitment of student veterans. And this is a really simple fix, actually, because uh, before the change in law, there was actually a direct reference to the Department of Education's similar prohibition on this type of activity, which is you know pretty straightforward. Uh, but they did actually drop that reference when uh, this law went into uh, effect at the beginning of the year. And even through a, a, a corrections bill, a bill correcting some of these items back in June, they didn't quite get at it. So really, we're just saying point back to the statute in the Higher Education Act that addresses this. 
it's a pretty simple reference and would make things pretty clear there. And the final bit, and this is really in the weeds, and I'm not going to get into the weeds, but it deals with how schools certify the enrollment of student veterans. And we basically just want to make sure that there's some flexibility in there for schools that may have flat tuition and fee structures. Um, you know, one size does not fit all in higher education. They might not necessarily need to go through extra measures to make sure a student isn't receiving too much or too little um, of their benefits because of their, their flat rates, you know, regardless of the credit count. So, so going through that extra act of certifying enrollment a second time to make sure everything is, is hunky-dory uh, may take time away from, from those school officials from providing other services and support. We really don't think uh, that it would result in really a decrease in overpayments because that's really what VA is looking at here. Uh, again, since those tuition and fee charges aren't really going to change after the ad drop period at these schools. And we are, we are asking that schools need not be approved to participate in the Department of Education's federal student aid programs in order to participate in the GI Bill program. Most schools are, but there are a handful of schools that, as a matter of choice, don't participate in the Department of Education's programs. And um, actually, one of them's a stone's throw from my hometown in Pennsylvania. Shout out to Grove City College. You know, these are all important, Liz, just because we really want to do right by our student veterans. So making it easier for them to make choices, easier to receive their benefits, and making sure that we're holding schools accountable in case they are acting inappropriately is important. So, yeah, this this was, this is a good bill. We're just trying to put the, the finishing touches uh, on, on this to make sure it's, it's impactful. And there's actually more with VA. I'll go real fast here. Um, they just have a rule over there that says a program, so a major, uh, it can't have uh, 85% or more of the students have their tuition fees or other charges paid for them by the school or, or VA. Um, if that threshold is hit, no new student vets can enroll in that program, only those enrolled in it. But we're working on some issues where VA would count students on that support, supported side erroneously. So basically, VA has this rule in place, right, to make sure that a bare minimum of students, non-VA students, are willing to pay for the full cost of, of a major. So they're just looking, again, at bad actors here, and we just don't want to see schools lumped in with some of those bad actors because of a misinterpretation of what, you know, support means. And I'll wrap just saying, outside of the VA space, um, an affordability and student loan regulations rewrite has begun. Um, the negotiated rulemaking process uh, has started at the Department of Education. And since it's the first one uh, of this new administration, it's pretty clear that this is a priority for them. And we see this all the time with new administrations. So, they're looking at Pell Grant reform, um, student loan forgiveness, uh, discharge programs, and, and loan repayment plans. So it's kind of a, a crazy process, and we could probably do a whole podcast on negotiated rulemaking and put everyone to sleep, but it's an important process. Um, it's the way the sausage is made, and um, we will be obviously monitoring it here at Nakubo. And they're actually, they just recently announced they're going to start another negotiated rulemaking process uh, in the near future to look at the Department of Education's 90-10 rule, which really focuses on for-profit institutions and, and how much revenue they receive from federal sources. Brian, let me follow up for a minute here for our listeners on that negotiated rulemaking process. Sure. When, when you say there's going to be a rewrite, 
Does that mean they're going to be creating new programs and investing new dollars into new ways of repaying student loans? What does a negotiated rulemaking process actually get to? What are they trying to reform in that process? They can't just do whatever they want because they are bound by law. So how a bill becomes a law, that happens, right? So you're, you're kind of bound by what is in the statute of the law. But then agencies like the Department of Education write regulations to kind of further uh, get into the details of what is prescribed in, in the law. So they can't create entirely new programs, but they can make modifications too. And I mean, in some cases, they do make significant changes. It's, it's really where you get the lawyers in there talking, but it's also a process that involves the public. So you have folks from the Department of Education, but you also have all kinds of stakeholders uh, from the community representing any number of types of institutions, students, consumer protection folks. So it's, it's a really inclusive process, and that's why I said it can be kind of long and, and drawn out, but that's by design because they want to have that input and feedback from others. But you think about all the issues with public service loan forgiveness, um, stuff like that. They're, they're still just trying to get that right. And obviously different administrations may have different um, visions for what right looks like. And sometimes we see a bit of a game of ping pong between administrations. But um, this, is, this is kind of how, it, how it's done. I think if I were to put a theme on your collective updates, I think today's theme would be the devil is in the details. Uh, we know that at Nakubo, I like to say, once you know one institution, you know one institution. We also know that a similar concept could be applied to students. Students aren't all 18-year-old full-time freshmen in residence in a college dormitory. We know that there are part-time students. There are students that live off campus. There are uh, any variety of uh, household and experiences that students bring with them to campuses. And all of that goes into the thinking as Nakubo is trying to ensure that lawmakers and policymakers are doing things in the best interest of students and institutions, whether it's the Pell Grant, the DACA program, student-athletes, veterans, college affordability concerns, veterans programs, and uh, this negotiated rulemaking process that is at the Department of Education. Before we go into our wrap-up, is there anything else, Megan or Brian, that you want to add on any of these issues? No, I would just say there's there's a lot up in the air right now. We've got to save some for the next <laughs> yeah. time. Lots up in the air. <laughs> there, there are certainly a lot of questions yet to be answered, and we are hoping that at the very least we see some kind of update or action, I should say, from Capitol Hill on this infrastructure deal in the coming weeks and months. And then we'll actually have real information and news for our listeners. In the meantime, it's, it's a stay tuned on those issues. But before we go, I thought maybe we'd leave our Nakubo in brief listeners with something a little more fun than the uncertainty of the devilish details we just spoke about. So before we go, I'm going to ask Megan and Brian to each share something that I'm going to call a party favor. Let's share with our listeners something that's recently captured your interest. Uh, it was a show, a movie, a podcast, something else. Let's start with Brian. What kind of party favor do you have for the listeners? 
Well, if you're looking for any kind of post, uh, you know, post regular season, postseason baseball analysis, you're not going to get it from me because I'm a Pirates fan, so you're not going to get that. But I'm actually oddly really excited about a concert that I have a ticket to that's about seven months away for um, up uh, Jeff Goldblum and the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. Jeff Goldblum is quite the jazz pianist. And a friend and I, we're going to go up to Strathmore um, for folks who aren't from the from the Make from the DC area. I know, you know. So say what you will, Goldblum. <laughs> I love Jeff Goldblum, and it it makes perfect sense that Brian is going to a Jeff Goldblum concert. <laughs> love this orchestra and like, is excited about row it, center. even though it's seven months away. Fourth row center. Yeah, he's interesting. He's odd. He's fascinating. He's complex all in one. So um, I'm uh, I'm going to that uh, up at the Strathmore, which is a fantastic uh, performance uh, venue uh, just outside of downtown D.C. here. So, yes, you got to have something to look forward to, right? <laughs> Brian, I, I will warn you, there may be a lot of Jeff Goldblum memes coming your way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I bring it. I love them. I send them to folks all the time. Please do. Always looking for a Goldblum meme. All right. Meme. Let's uh, see if Megan can beat Jeff Goldblum and the Mildred Schnitzer Orchestra. Mildred Schnitzer Orchestra. Yeah. Check it out. I, it is hard to beat that. Although I did recently learn that uh, Jeff Goldblum has like a four or five year old and he is like late 50s or early 60s. So you know, kudos to him because I assume he is just constantly tired because he still works so much and he's got a small child. And <laughs> so go you, Jeff Goldblum. And he's a Western Pennsylvania yeah. guy, <laughs> Western Pennsylvanian. So, you know, team Pennsylvania, Goldblum and Love Dixon. It. Love it. Uh, my party favor is uh, a Netflix original show uh, that is, as we record this podcast, releasing its final season uh, this week. It's called On My Block. It's a great show. I think it's criminally underrated, and I'm looking forward to watching it and uh, seeing how they wrap things up. Megan, what's the show about? I have to admit, I haven't heard about it. It's great. No one has heard of it. It's such a good show. There's four seasons. Um, that The fourth will be the last season, the one that is coming out this week. It's about a group of four really close friends uh, growing up in an L.A. neighborhood and just sort of the different adventures they get into. Um, there's a lot of different uh, exploration of race and class and how it impacts their friendship. Um, and it's it's really great. There's a the final season, I believe, is going to have some exploration of um, how their background has uh, enabled them or not enabled them to uh, engage in higher ed. So I think that's always really topical for us to uh, to see. But it's just it's super humorous and heartwarming uh, and interesting all at once. So Highly recommend it. That's great. And it's called again? It's called On My Block. On My Block yeah. is headed to my watch list on Netflix. I guess the parting favor I will share with you is another app like Netflix. It's called BritBox. It's a streaming service. And I discovered this maybe a little bit of less than a year ago. It's great if you love old Britcoms. They have many of the old Britcoms that you can catch on PBS available to stream here. But... There is one show that I love, and it's called Gardener's World. I've spent a lot of time in the garden during the pandemic and this past year. And if you could watch mindfulness on TV, I think watching this show is the equivalent of watching mindfulness on TV. That may sound boring to some, but I'm hoping it sounds intriguing to others. I can't tell you how much I've learned 
uh, about gardening and British gardens. And it's just been a fascinating look at the the role gardens have played in the world in the last 18 months of, as people dealt with the shutdown and the pandemic. Sounds very tranquil. <laughs> yes, the perfect word for it. Uh, something we all need after dealing with uh, all of the other things going on here in Washington. With that, there's our episode of Nakubo and Brief for you today. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Brian. And you can look for additional updates from the Nakubo policy team in Current, our weekly newsletter, and uh, online our, on our website at nakubo.org. Thank you. Thank you.